Hey, it's Ari Shafir. You're listening to the Yuck Yuck Comedy Podcast. Do you think you're the next Russell Peters? Why not find out by performing on our Amateur Night? Visit yuckyucks.com for information on how to sign up. Amateur Night is only available at participating Yuck Yucks clubs. Be sure to visit us at www.yuckyucks.com. Twitter. Twitter. And follow us on Twitter using hashtag YYCP. What is going on, my little yucky maniacs? This is your host, Jake Hirsch. I want to thank you for joining me on the Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. We've got a great show lined up for you today, but lots of announcements before we get there. Of course, we have the big New Year's Eve Yuck Yucks Bash at your participating Yuck Yucks Comedy Clubs. Go check them out, yuckyucks.com. Be sure to go check out who's playing your local Yuck Yucks on New Year's Eve. They always have the best shows. Tons of corporate parties. I was just at the club this past weekend, and it was stacked full of corporate parties. It was awesome to see. And, of course, going and seeing talent firsthand is also amazing. It's getting a free pass every week to see some of the brightest young stars that Yuck Yucks graces with the stage. So... With that being said, I want to jump right into this week's episode. This is a very, very near and dear episode to my heart, and I'll get into explaining why, but uh, this week's guest is Steve Simone. Steve Simone is a comedian out of Los Angeles who was up doing uh, the Calgary Yuck Yucks Club. Uh, I went in, got to watch him perform. He does just incredible comedy stories. I'm not sure if you guys have seen his work, but... Uh, I implore you to go check out Steve Simone wherever he is performing. He does some of the best stories from his childhood. And in fact, he's got just an amazing podcast called Good Times with Steve Simone, uh, where he talks a lot about growing up and has fascinating guests on the show. And it's no wonder why his podcast is, is very, very popular and doing very, very well. I went into the club. I got to meet up with Steve afterwards. We did an incredible podcast. It was just one of the most touching and deep conversations. And I don't get to have those overly often. Uh, you know, especially when you're interviewing people, you know, sometimes people can wear their heart on their sleeve. We've had people on the show before get very deep, get very sentimental. Uh, they've talked about what's going on in their personal lives and has shared a lot of deep, deep things with us. This episode is no different. Steve really opens up and tells me all about growing up uh, with his family and just where he got that background from, um, to go out there and, you know, just this amazing attitude that he's had throughout his lifetime, uh, working in corporate America and, you know, really following his dream and, and, and pushing through to really follow his passion and his dreams. And, and that obviously for any performer out there is, is absolutely incredible to do, but to hear someone talk about that journey and talk about what got them there. And, and it was, it was a very true, very humbling experience. Steve's been around the comedy game for a while. You know, he's not, you know, a one or two year comedian, uh, just kind of getting out there without the ability to really give an informed opinion on what the comedy business has been like for him and what it was like growing up. Um, and so when I have the chance to sit down with some of these people Guys like Steve Simone, guys like Stan Tripoli, who have been around, you know, Ari Shafir, guys who have been around back in the day that can tell stories about 
the comedy store and what Mitzi Shore was like and, and being around at that time where you saw these other comedians coming up that you looked around and you knew that these guys were going to be superstars and the females too. I don't, I just mean that as a terminology, but it's, it's very, it's very cool because I really hope that one day someone will interview me and say, who was around when you got on the comedy scene, who was around that you were interviewing back in the day that you kind of hung out with or, or you met and, and you really saw promising. And I'm going to have a huge list full of people that I've personally been able to go and see and sit down and talk to and not only get to know, but to share in some of their triumphs and, and tribulations in the comedy world. I keep in touch with a lot of comedians. I really do. I, you know, I'm, I'm very quick to make friends with, with a lot of people and a lot of friendships have stood out. I talk to people on the regular. Like we're talking on a daily basis. I text friends that are in the comedy game. And it's remarkable that I've been able to create such such amazing friendships in such a short period of time of being here. But I'm truly honored. And this interview was an absolute honor to me. Uh, meeting Steve right off the bat, we clicked. Um, I don't know what it was, but I, maybe just a sense of uh, camaraderie, much like uh, Eddie Delisepi and myself have. And when we talk about Los Angeles, because obviously I used to live there, and Steve is uh, is living there right now. And you know, we talk about some of the just the eccentric things about Los Angeles. So right off the bat, we hit it off, and I think we figured out that it was around that time that he was working at the Gold's Gym that I used to go to in Venice Beach. And uh, so I think we were in the same company <laughs> maybe a couple of times and not even realizing it, which was was super fascinating. And we just immediately started laughing and telling stories and, and, and talking about people in the gym and, and you know, these, these characters that were kind of lurking around Venice Beach Golds back in the day. And uh, we talked about my career in law enforcement. We talked about, you know, just a bunch of stuff. And, and we ended up going out for dinner after the show, myself, Steve, and... And, uh, and the manager over there at the Yucks, uh, at the Calgary Yucks, uh, Scott Robertson. And, uh, and, and we just had a great time. We had Chinese food and we, we sat and we bullshit till like two o'clock in the morning. It was just, it was a fantastic evening during this time. Steve and I started talking a lot about his charity work and the work that he does for the Los Angeles children's hospital and the Santa Steve, um, GoFundMe uh, account and the and the work that he's doing behind the scenes to help a couple of families Christmas become so much brighter. And it would be remiss of me not to talk about that. Uh, we just got an update a couple of days ago from Steve on the GoFundMe page, uh, which I can announce that they have raised $14,452 of a I think Steve was going out. I think that's what the number is there on the right-hand side is what he kind of aimed to be or aimed to get, sorry, for this fund, $3,000. Uh, people stepped up. People stepped up. There was anonymous donors. There were other donors with, you know, obviously a, a huge, huge uh, name uh, that got involved. I mean, we're talking Bill Burr, Demi Lovato, uh, it's some real heavy hitters. And a lot of people came out of the woodwork to really make sure that these families got an incredible Christmas this year. And it's very touching for me because to see someone in such a, a selfless, selfless position to, to go out there and spread this type of happiness and try to make other people's lives so much better. And we talk about that on this interview. We talk about, uh, 
why he does that and where he gets that motivation from. So it was a real honor sitting down and listening to Steve and have him tell me all about karma and how everything comes back. And, and if you're out there making someone else's world better, uh, why are you not doing that? And so that really motivated me and it, uh, it, it motivated me, uh, sorry, motivated me to get in the Christmas spirit. I ended up donating, um, some money towards two families in need here in Calgary. And I just implore people to get involved in these types of things. If you want to give to Steve's Santa Steve fund, uh, they can use all the money that they can get because not only is he playing Santa to some of these well-deserved sick kids, um, but to their families as well, who are equally as subjected to the trials and tribulations of what they're going through, what their children are actually going through. So this will help give them a great Christmas and also a great foundation to a brand new start. Um, I really hope that people can go check him out. We were going to put a link up on the page. It's the GoFundMe account, Santa Steve. Uh, check it out. I, I really, really implore you guys to to send some money over there uh, his way. Or you know what? In the name of Steve, go out there and donate money, donate your time. If you don't have money, you got time. Either one works and just go out there and make someone else's day better and someone else's Christmas brighter. If you can, if you're a comedian and you don't have money, go to the local hospital and put on a comedy show. They, they would love for you guys to do that stuff. So I think the message here is that he really wanted us to be better people and wants us to be more selfless. And Steve Simone is a prime example of that. And I'm, I'm truly honored uh, to call him a friend and uh, to keep in touch with him. So, uh, you know what? I'm going to keep blubbering, so let's go talk to Steve Simone. Okay, think about it. Heartbreak. <laughs> it's choking you up. Right? Yeah. Three days, no carbs, and then two days with carbs. And he said, that way you burn fat in your body, like, won't know to save carbs for energy, it'll just burn fat for energy or something. I don't know. Really? So, something. They call it carb cycling. Oh, I see. So and this guy's like, go oh. into like ketosis or something. Yeah, because yeah, like yeah. that's the new thing where everybody's talking about ketosis, ketosis, ketosis. Right. And good fats. And this guy talks about all that stuff, but he was like, no, the carbs will kick in and you'll it'll keep your body off balance. Who is this this guy, by the way? My buddy, Mike Pye. Oh, okay. He's, one of, he's a like personal trainer to the stars and... I, I've heard that name before. Yeah, he's like like he's been everybody's trainer. <laughs> and really? for he likes my podcast, so I get free yeah. advice. <laughs> I get to hang out man. with him. Dude, at the comedy store like three weeks ago, two weeks ago, the last time I was in town on a weekend, right. Mike Pye came by with this guy, Robert Oberst, Obi, who's like the world's strongest man. No way. Yeah, I felt so cool that <laughs> like, I was like finally the cool kids want to sit at my lunch table. It was awesome. Steve Simone. Thanks for hanging out, man. Hey, that's... Uh, I love the stickers. Yeah. I'll give you stickers, but you don't have to ruin your laptop. No, are you kidding totally me? I would I would stickers. be honored if you uh, if you labeled up my uh, laptop, man. I'm going to buy a shirt from you, too. Those are the best shirts ever. You and the Willy Wonka one. ticket? Yeah, you could just have that stuff. No. My merch is fun. No, 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 no. No, that's how you make friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to start, man. First off, I want to say I'm a huge fan. I'm going to kiss your ass for a bit here. I'm a huge fan. Oh, thanks. And, and uh, it's just incredible watching you work, man. Thanks. Incredible. Well, it's all con- – we were talking earlier for me, and it's not a lie. Yeah. It's, con- it's contingent on the crowd. It is. Like when people are in the right mood and they want to – celebrate life a little bit right. or then it's great and yeah. then it's like i have the best job in the world 
But then there are nights where people just, they just don't get it. And they're just not going to be my fans. Right. You know, and I want, they're the people I want to cultivate as fans the most. Sure. Because like, I want to go out there and give the audience a hug and be like, there was one night, because like sometimes I try too hard. Right. And audiences, it's sometimes audiences, and this isn't supposed to be like misogynist, but you ever sometimes, if you try too hard with a girl, she loses respect for you. Absolutely. Audiences do the same thing. Like sometimes if you want them to have a good time and you force it, it doesn't work. Right. So somewhere in the last, I don't know, six months, I had a crowd that I could tell they needed it, Mm -hmm. but they weren't letting me give them that hug. Right. And I went, Hey man, here's the truth. There's a joy in my heart. Right. I've been miserable. I don't feel that way anymore. Yeah. And I go, there's a legitimate joy in my heart that I'm just trying to put in your heart. Can you let your walls down and let's have fun tonight? Yeah. And it worked. So it's almost like giving permission to people to relax and have fun yeah and celebrate life and let's really focus like i'm starting to put more of my point of view on the things right about like hey man let's celebrate what we have yeah there's always something to complain about right right there is absolutely but then there's also always something to celebrate yeah and when you think about it the best stuff in life we all have access to it Mm -hmm. the best stuff is you know it's family it's friends it's food it's good times and i think as a society we're, we're caught up in what doesn't matter. It's right. not what you wear. It's not how you look. Right. It's not how much money you have. And it's tough to sometimes break that programming. Sure. You know, but it, that, that's my mission. How, was that, is, is, is that attitude something that you've evolved over time? Yes. 100%. It's something that you've evolved to. Yeah, because there were, there were years where I was in a really dark place. I was the sad guy at the comedy. I was the, look, comedians in general are depressed. Right. I was the most depressed <laughs> at the comedy store. You were the bar. Yes. <laughs> you They're set like, the standard for depression. Yes. <laughs> for sad comedians. Yeah, and right? the people are like, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, I got in touch with my faith and right. wired my brain. I started to focus on what's right instead of what's wrong. Right. And it worked. That's crazy. It is crazy, right? You know, let's, well, since you brought it up, let's talk about that. I mean, you started off, you're a Philadelphia kid, right? Yeah. And you grew up in Philadelphia and you the talk suburbs. a lot about yeah. your, your, your family, your brothers are obviously yeah. a huge part of your show and stuff like that. Uh, but you were, you were a true fan of comedy growing up. Oh yeah. I mean, you My talk about are... Pryor, you talk about Marin. I mean, yeah. well, earlier years, you talked about Eddie Murphy changing your, your entire perspective about comedy. Yeah. And back then it was Pryor and Kaufman and all those yeah, types everybody. of guys. everybody. My family, we celebrate, like I look back and there was a lot we didn't have. Sure. But we had everything that was important. Number right. one, we had each other. And my family knows how to eat. And my family knows how to laugh. Yeah. And it was, and I'm so grateful for the neighborhood I grew up in. It was the suburbs and it was very diverse. Yeah. Like for suburban Philadelphia, I remember there was a Japanese family straight from Japan. Right. There was an Indian family. There was a Persian family. It was beyond diverse. But primarily my neighborhood was Jewish and Italian. Really? And we had... So much good food and so much laughs and so much craziness. Like as soon as somebody was about to do something dangerous, mom's ESP would go on and be like, Joshua, get in the house. Or Stephen Anthony, do not light that boy on fire. Like it was great. And it was – it was. I wouldn't cherry my childhood for anything. That's great, man. And you guys were – I mean I, I read that you were pretty much jockeying for position around the table as to sure. who, who, who was telling the yeah, jokes. Yeah, my family always – my dad is the best audience member in the world. Really? He has the best laugh. Like he's the type of guy where tears will come out of his eyes and he has to shake off laughs because he can't breathe. <laughs> trying to kill me. And then he'd get his breath back and be mad at you for making him laugh like that. Oh, you my You were trying God. to take my breath. 
Sons of bitches. It's <laughs> dynamite, man. That was the best. That the is funniest. great, man. He would hide in his car. He wouldn't come in the house ever. Really? Time. Yeah, he'd just be like, I can't go in that, in that house. <laughs> and then recently he told me, he goes, what you didn't know is that that was after I took the long way home. And I did a lot of, a lot of laps around the neighborhood. <laughs> Oh, my God, man. That's brilliant. So great. That is dynamite, man. What does your family think about what you're doing now? They love it. It's probably... 100% support. Did you think this is what you're going to do, though? Um, No. Really? Did you think you were going to do it? It's like, I thought you had to know somebody to do comedy. Well, it's funny because you talk a lot about... Because you worked in corporate America for a while. Mm -hmm. You landed a dream job. I did everything else I could do. Yeah. But you, I remember a quote that you had said that you worked for the Philadelphia Eagles. It was a dream job to even just be a part of that organization. Whatever capacity it was. Whatever. But it eventually became work for you. Yeah. And... And I think, and if I'm just, uh, I just want to make sure that I have this, this quote. Where'd you find out all this stuff? Was it Ari's oh, podcast? I, I do my research, yeah, man. man. You're I do my research. Uh, you had, uh, you had a friend who said, uh, you've been given a gift to make people laugh. And if you don't use that, it doesn't matter if you become rich. It doesn't matter if you become famous. It doesn't matter if you become a professional, but you owe it to yourself and everybody else to at least try. Yeah, it's true. And you did that. Yeah. What That's that everything, like, right? Yeah. Like, what was that? That what, really is everything though. Taking it's a big, big attempt. Leap. Right. It's like, you have to. Yeah. You, you owe it to, to yourself. You owe it to yourself. Yeah, and, and more than that, like, I really think the only way to be happy is it's not about me. Uh, it's not about me at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I really do believe we're all put here. Take religion out of it. Sure. The only way to really be happy is by focusing on other people. Right. And I think we're all given gifts to make everybody's life easier. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Like, I have friends of mine that can fix anything really they can just go oh what did you do? and i'm like how do you do that you're a right. wizard yeah i know people where math makes sense to them where people were just listening makes sense like there are careers out there that if you really think about it serve make the world a better place sure and that's what we're called to do and for whatever reason we were blessed with this thing that makes people happy and society values it and i'm like i don't i guess I'm going to try to make a living out of this. It's worth the roll of the dice. But you know what? Your comedy is so interesting because you're, I mean, I, I would, I would imagine you're a true raconteur. you you tell stories. I love it. And you captivate an audience that is, like, it's very, very difficult to find like that. Well, what I, thank you for the compliment, mm-hmm. but it's also like, how can I say this? It, it takes a long time to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it still takes me time to workshop stories. Right. But once you you can sort of learn how to say things funny instead of coming up with creative funny things to say. Sure. Which is a skill that's amazing. And what I love about comedy is that what people find funny is more diverse than what they find delicious. Right. It's so personal. Yeah. And there's so many different ways to approach it. But kind of from a selfish perspective, I'm like, it took me longer to develop my style. But now writing material is really easy. Right. Because I could be like, oh, this happened yesterday. Yeah. I'll tell them what happened yesterday. That's crazy, man. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's brilliant, dude. You know, and, and, and it's funny because it's something relatable, I find. Like, your comedy is very relatable to a lot of people. Well, that's the other... That's the one problem that... That's the one burden I put on myself. Right. Where I go, okay. Like, tonight, I think I said the S word once. Mm-hmm. I did, like, an hour. And I don't want to curse at all. When I shoot a special, it's going to be completely clean... Not because I'm against dirty comedy, not because I don't curse off stage, but because what I do, mm-hmm. little kids watch it. Right. And when I came out with my CD, there are families that play it together. Sure. 
And that's such a great compliment because that's how I became a comedy fan. Right. And I really do want to inspire that next generation. Yeah. And I had a little kid call me out on it. Really? Yeah. He Tell was me like about five, that. That's like it's the truth. And even Ari, we did Ari's storyteller show. Right. And he's like, now I have to edit this for television. But he's like, when it goes up on the web, we'll do the full story. And there was a curse word in my set. I did like a 22-minute story. On sure. Corner. But he goes, you want me to cut that out? I'm like, I didn't want to seem like a prima donna. Right. And he goes, what about that little kid <laughs> whose heart you broke? And I went, yeah, take out the curse word. <laughs> like even Ari was like, look, I'm looking out for it. Because <laughs> the truth was. The Jiminy Cricket. Yes. Please, I love that kid so much. Oh, my God. I, when the CD came out, a dad posted a video of him in the car with his two sons. They're like five and seven. Right. And they're huge fans of mine. Right. Okay. And the little five-year-old kid is like, Steve Simone, you are so funny. Loving it. Yeah. Midnight. <laughs> and then about, and I'm like, this is why I do it. This is my paycheck. Yeah. I don't need to make a million bucks. This is it. Right. And that was posted on my Facebook wall. Then I went out. I did something. I came back. I checked Facebook. And like 11 minutes after that initial video, it's the dad in the car again. Right. And he goes, Steve Simone, somebody has something to say to you. And he goes, Steve, somebody has something to say to you. Because it was the little kid that said my first and last name. And it's the five-year-old again, heartbroken, in the backseat of the car. And he just goes, Steve Simone, you are so funny, but you said a bad word. And I went, and then the dad grabbed the phone and he goes, that's right, buddy. And the dad thinks no it's hysterical. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the dad's like, you said the yes word. You might want to clean up your act. And I went, all right, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Because nobody's doing like nobody does it, man. It's like I know how to tell stories. It took me a long time. That's great, whatever. Right. But now I've, I'm trying to run it through a filter, which I don't recommend anybody do. I'm not saying it makes me better. I'm not saying it's a part of comedy. In fact, I think comedy should be the opposite. Right. But for whatever reason, I have these this fan base of like families and stuff, and I I think with that comes a responsibility. Right. And so now I've learned my lesson. I did a TV show with Gabriel Iglesias. We did a clean version and a dirty version. The dirty version got shared on the internet. Right. Little kids are upset. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm never doing The lesson learned. Yeah. So now this is the filter I run my stuff through where I go, is this life affirming? Right. Is this positive? Is this, are people going to be in a better mood for hearing this? Mm -hmm. Is it going to slightly change their perspective to celebrate life more and then make it clean? Right. So that's that's kind of the, the filters I try to run stuff through now when I write jokes. That's interesting. Like the thing I closed on tonight right. is brand new, and it really is like I don't want to ever preach, but I want to go, hey, man, whether you want to listen to me or not, we're all connected. Sure. And you don't even have to do something good. You just need to see something good, right. and it will make you feel good. That's such a great outlook, man. And it's But it's true. And you leave it. I mean, and it's uh, – I don't know, man. It's uh, It's – interesting oh my mic is cutting out here okay uh it's a very interesting outlook because not every it's it's a real risk because when Huge. you're up there it, it's not always going to be like and we all feel great again at the very you know what i mean it's yeah. like it's saying listen like there's something bigger than all of us here in this room but if yeah. we collectively come out with the same attitude we're all going to get to the same exact place which will be the greatest yeah which is really what i would love to do but there are times like i was on stage last week and it was just a late, you, do, you know, the late night sure. crowds. Yeah, yeah. And I had to curse. And I essentially did my set, but with F-bombs. And it, like, I destroyed. And it, but it just didn't feel right. Right. And it was like, mm. I still do it as a, because nobody knows who the hell I am yet. 
You know, like, and it's people come to the comedy clubs to see comedy. Sure. They come to see comedy and then they'll become my fan. Right. A couple of them will come back the next time I come through a market. Then they'll come back. I'll sure. build the market slowly. Right. But it's challenging. Like, if you're trying to work clean and be positive, people will be like, hey, man, yeah. talk about your dick. <laughs> you know, that's why I came here. I don't know, man. You know, hack is hack for a reason, though. I've seen some people do some really lowbrow comedy and kill it in a yeah. room. And then I've seen people go out there and really try to connect on a different level yeah. of some higher brow comedy and leave people in a good, good place. And there's some people out there, don't, like as you said, there's no matter what you do, they're looking for that easy yeah. laugh, right? Yeah. They're looking for that. You never know. Like, like the tough thing is, this is our job. Sure. You have to make them laugh. Right. And But then it's also like you have to be true to yourself. So then you go, how can I be me? Right. And also do my job. Well, that brings me, yeah, that brings me to this other point here. You talked about doing a show back in San Diego years and years ago. Yeah. In front of a huge thousand plus seat arena yep. where you got booed off. off. Yep. You were supposed to do a half hour, about four minutes in. You said the stage manager was essentially telling you to get off the stage. Yeah. Uh, you said that you almost had like this outer body experience. No, not almost. Legitimately. Yeah. Where you literally came out and you saw people booing you. Yeah. And I've heard people say that in extremely stressful situations that happens like it right for whatever i have some friends that are like military guys yeah one guy told me he was in a firefight and that happened to him right I'm like, well i wasn't in a fire <laughs> but i did get booed it was pretty <laughs> bad <laughs> you know what it's like trying to compare stories with like real life War heroes. And everything. Yeah, I'm like, okay you win <laughs> well i think the interesting part is that you'd said that the worst thing that could happen that it's still what that, that's you know that's ultimately the worst thing that could ever happen to a, a, to a comedian a could not have a worse set. Sure. And in that worst time, and it's a great metaphor for life, yeah. because during the darkest worst thing became something beautiful. Right, right. And I'm like, oh, I have nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. I have nothing to be afraid that's, of. That's a, and, and I think the quote that you had used was that uh, uh, you said that you felt an obligation to the audience, that it's a place for you to give and not a place for me to get. For and sure. it's not about you doing well. It's about you trying to make people laugh. But that experience of being booed off stage gave you the confidence to say, do whatever you want to do up there. The goal is still to make them laugh, but don't say something because you expect a laugh. Say something because you mean it. Yes, and that's and still that a lesson I'm learning. It is. Yeah, it's a constant comeback to, like, I don't know what it, it – it's weird. It's like, do you ever read a great book mm -hmm. and you love it and it makes sense to you? Right. And then you come back a couple years later, you're like, oh, my God, there's something still in this book I didn't pick up the first time. Right. Then you go, like my dad, God bless him, gave me great advice. He was like, and I, ha I I don't do it every year, but he was like, read the same book every year. Right. And you'll find yourself relating to different characters. And he goes, and you'll find more truth in that work of art. Wow. And it's true. Like I noticed that That's in films. Advice. I would notice that like in certain TV, like I went back and watched The Sopranos again. Right. And I'm like, my God, is this thing a How did I miss this? Yeah. Yes. How did I miss this? Exactly. And then like right now, for whatever reason, I'm doing that a lot with music. Right. Where I'm like, wait, that's what this song's about? <laughs> I had no idea. I, I, I noticed that about, uh, I think there was a film. It's funny that, that you would bring this up. I just talked about this a little while ago. Uh, good, good, uh, good, Goodwill Hunting, the movie. And I noticed that there was, I've gone back and I've watched it two or three Fun times. And little nuances, uh, you know, him riding the train where he's looking down at the floor the entire time. At the end of the movie, he's on the train looking out the window. Yeah. And understand that there's a bigger world out there than just what he's in. And I the think the, it's, so yeah, it's, it's amazing when you catch those moments where you're like, holy shit, how did I miss this metaphor? Or how did I miss this lesson in life? That's such a great film 
for me because I was at the right age. Right. That when it first came out, I related to Matt Damon so much. Mm -hmm. And now I'm old enough to relate to Robin Williams. Like, I haven't gone through that level of tragedy or whatever. Sure. But you just, you, you have different problems at different stages of your life. Absolutely. And, um, it's the great thing about what we do. Hopefully we can help people get through those different stages of their life. Yeah. You know, like I would love, I talked to an old school manager that worked with George Carlin. Right. That saw Carlin, uh, what's the music venue? It wasn't even a comedy venue. Doug Weston's Troubadour. I was going to say the Troubadour. Yeah. yeah. And LA, man. Yeah. Land, landmark. Yeah. Yeah. And like they would do like a folk night or whatever. And I guess Carlin was just starting to do his countercultural stuff. And he was like in his 40s. Right. And this guy was like, man, you should be doing the colleges. They're the people that are ready to hear this. And I've always thought, like, whenever I get in front of young kids, there's just this impulse where you want to teach. Right. At least I have that. Yeah. And I'm like, if I started to do colleges, what would I really want to teach kids? And I'm like, oh, celebrate life. Mm -hmm. We put too much pressure on everybody to succeed. Right. And it's like, succeed for what? What is success? Yeah. Yeah. Because the story we're told is, like, I hate to, it's a lie. Mm -hmm. It's not things. I think you made a reference at some point. Uh, I remember you saying... About uh, you realize at about eight years old that your dreams were not going to happen. You're not going to become a professional wrestler. You weren't going to become, you know. But it's at that moment in time where you're like, you know what? Uh, I can do something else, though. I can, I can, you know. There's always something. Yeah. There's always something, and I think one of the cool lessons I've learned is that it's never too late. Yeah. Like I used to, I remember being 22, and then I'd given up. Right. And I'm like, no, I guess you just graduate from school and you get a job, and that's what life is. Right. No, life is a one-shot deal. Yeah. Well, if there's something you want to do, do it. Right. Do it. Yeah. And then, like, people are like, well, how? Like, well, you're blessed because your family's great. I'm like, no, wait. I remember once somebody's like, well, it must be nice to have a perfect family. And I started to laugh. And I'm like, the words perfect and family should never go together. <laughs> Same sentence. Never. Right. It just, uh, like, it doesn't. But they're like, you know, people have gone through horrible things. But I'm like, you have the opportunity to be a mother or right. a father. You can define family however you want. You can change it. To yeah. me, family is loving somebody unconditionally. Right. That's what it is. And you have that choice. You could do that right now. Yeah. You could start your family now. Right. Take that risk. And I think as a society, we're all so scared. Right. People are so fearful of being vulnerable. Right. And it took me forever to realize. Like, up until this year, I was like, why, why didn't this relationship work out? Why didn't this relationship work out? And I went, oh, I was trying to protect myself. Right. You can't love somebody and protect yourself. Right. It's impossible. Exactly. So take that risk. Right. And when people go, okay, well, what about friends? I don't have any friends. I'm like, be a good friend. Whatever you want, give it away. If you sure. want love, give it away. If you want money, give it away. If you want dreams, help somebody reach their dream. Is there a connection between relationships that you have in your personal life and the relationships that you build with that audience out there? Because when you're up on stage, the, man, the relationships, it's a vulnerable. I learned, I once had a girlfriend tell me that and it broke my heart where she said, how come you could be so vulnerable with an audience and you couldn't do that with me? Right. And that was a huge lesson. Right. Because I used to say, I think a lot of performers have this where I said it's uh, it's love without responsibility. Right. That's that's such a great great way of putting it, man. Right? Like yeah. you get out there and you're in that, and you, I connect and it's great and it's like, but they can't really hurt me. I've been booed off stage. It's not so bad. You right. can't hurt me. <laughs> but then there are the girls where it's that Robin Williams thing from Goodwill Hunting. Right. Where she could just devastate you with a look. Absolutely. Scary, yeah, it is. And especially with a lot of the girls I meet, I'm like, do, do I trust her with this responsibility? <laughs> Does she get the codes to launch the nukes? I don't think so. <laughs> 
That's a great way of putting it, man. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> code to launch you, the you can't nuke. do cocaine on weekends. And I can't, I can't, you can't do that and have the key to my heart. I go to church. You know? Oh, man. Uh, you said you moved to California and you tried to be a comedian. You started at the comedy store and you worked every single job there. And it took Everyone you eight years to go from open mic, uh, which was three minutes on stage every yeah. week, uh, to being able to have the opportunity to get 15. Uh, from 15 that, minutes, yeah. yeah. Stage time for a young comedian is the number one commodity. As a rock and tour, though, I mean, as someone who it, it, it takes a while to build bits. Yeah. Is that, I know in Los Angeles, man, I mean, I'm from yeah. Los Angeles. It, it's it's a difficult place to do your five, man. Yeah. And to be That's able to build that relationship. People go, who's this guy? He can't be that funny. Because <laughs> it takes a long time. <laughs> and then to work out a good 20 minute bit. Yeah. And then a lot of the stuff I realized it's like, if I open up with it, it's not funny. Right. You have to build that trust with an audience, and then I can get a little more vulnerable. Kind of tro- tro- like Trojan horse it a bit. Yeah. 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 Like I go back and I – recently I had a comedy. The best thing about stand-up is it keeps you humble. Right. I don't care who you are. Yeah. You're going to get one of those audiences where you go, why did I go wrong? Right. And I just had a, a very big show, and it didn't go great. And I realized that I did not oh, – I didn't stick to the basics. It's a very big crowd. It was a prestigious gig. And I did not open up for myself, meaning I didn't do the easier stuff first. Right. And I go back and watch, like, watch Eddie Murphy's Delirious. Mm-hmm. He'll do 20 minutes of, like, very easy stuff. Sure. Before he opens up about his family and starts right. telling real stories. Right. Bill Cosby himself, he talks about drinking for 20 minutes before he opens up about his family and stories. Right, right. And I go, all right, if two of the greatest ever touch a microphone, yeah. open up for themselves, who am I to think? I could be like, so my little brother's crazy. The audience is like, who are you? Right. Why do we care about your little brother? Exactly. You slowly build that relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, I do so many podcasts that sometimes you lose. Podcasts are great for comedy because it teaches you how to take your time right. and, be, and be real. Yeah. And I think the real comedy nerds, that's what they want. Right. They want the good stuff. Absolutely. But then sometimes you get an audience where it's not real comedy nerds. Mm-hmm. It's people that work their ass off all week. Right. This is their one night out. They won free tickets. They don't know who the hell you are. Right. They know they're paying for a babysitter. Yeah. They know they hate their job. They know they have barely enough money for the beer in front of them, so right. you better bring it. So I, like, I, yeah. keep that in mind, like, you got to open up for yourself and hit them, get them laughing. That's such an interesting point. I think uh, Sam Tripoli brought that up to Tripoli. me where he was like, you know what? Uh, there's people out there that want to see like if you hear about someone getting attacked at the at, at the fucking zoo you're gonna that's the busiest day of the year the very next day at the zoo people want to go out there. there's certain there's a certain demographic of people like you said the people that work their ass off every week they want to go they want to be entertained they want to see something they don't right. ever get to see before yeah. yeah and then like i was i'm very conscious about cycling up my material mm-hmm. like i could get a thousand compliments but it's one negative comment and i guess it's human nature right where some i had been through a market three months earlier right and, dude, you're not going to write another hour. I don't care if you're Bill Burr. You're not doing an hour in three months. Right, right. And somebody was like, he did the same jokes as before. So now I'm like, Jesus. I'm like, I try to make it special every night. Right. Try to mix up the material. And then there's new stuff. There's stuff that's, like, not done yet. But then, like, tonight, I'm like, there's a big corporate party in there. Mm-hmm. I want to bring my A game. It's right. Thursday night. I want positive word of mouth. Yeah. So I did pretty much... I did like three bits that I wouldn't normally do, but they're greatest hits. Yeah. And now I'm starting to rethink it where I go, just because I put it on a CD a year ago, there might be 
five, if you're lucky, people in the audience that have heard your CD. Right. So mix up the material. Like, don't don't be lazy. Don't just do the same stuff. But if you have a killer bit, give that to the audience. Use Open it. with that. Open with one of your greatest hits. Right. And then if they're right, because the magic can happen sure. when it's a great crowd where you can just create in the moment. Right. That's the best. Yeah. And then tonight, I almost had a little moments like that where I thought of different lines or I worded something different. I was so pissed my set, I didn't record my set. My recorder turned off. Oh, I, I noticed that you had kept looking down at the... Yeah, and I'm like, is this recording? And then I didn't want to go long because right. I didn't want to be the dick that only has one show and I'm keeping the staff here. <laughs> I don't want the staff to be like, who does this guy think he is? Louis C.K.? <laughs> Wrap it up. Well, you mentioned your podcast, man. I would be remiss not to bring it out. Uh, bring it up. Simply put, man, it's amazing. It's an amazing oh, thanks, podcast, dude. dude. Uh, it's I called mean, Good Times. Can we record an episode this weekend with me and you? Oh, I would be absolutely honored to do that, man. Dude, that would be awesome. Let's that would do this be killer, man. Chinese food. Oh, that would be. <laughs> you like ginger beef, Calgary? Man. I already had it today. Did you? I went to Silver Dragon, killed it. Yeah, that's an amazing spot, huh? And somebody <laughs> told me about the spot. It's called like the China Inn or something. Or a Golden Inn. I Golden think Inn. It, I saw that fan. I think yes. on, tw- on Twitter. So yeah, I'm like, have to try it. <laughs> we got to go to Golden. <laughs> got to do it. You uh, on, on the podcast, man? Uh, it, it's it, who's been some of your favorite guests? You know what? One episode that really stuck out to me. Was uh, Uncle Joey man Coco? Love him. And that episode, it was it was not something I'd ever heard from him before. He really opened up to you. Yeah. You have those moments on that on that podcast it's where it's just it's crazy, man. I don't know what it is. I don't know. Um, I think it almost becomes therapeutic for people sometimes right. to just talk about their childhood. Yeah. Like I honestly, when I envisioned the podcast, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to get in the podcast game. Right. I knew it. Like, as soon as I knew what they were, I'm like, I want to do that. But right. I didn't have any of the technical savvy or yeah. whatever. You need help. Sure. It took me a long time to realize life's a team sport. You need people to help you. <laughs> right. So what I thought the podcast would be was when I first started to tell stories about me and my brothers on stage. Right. It was much more raw than it is now. The edges weren't smooth in the stories yet, but the emotion was real. Mm-hmm. And that's what people connected to. So after shows, people would want to tell me their stories about growing up. And I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. Because I felt like I was making friends. Yeah. So then I was like, all right, your podcast will be that. Will be the conversations you have with people after shows. Right. So I just would say, like, want to talk to people about fun stuff. Sure. That they did as kids. Like, did you ever catch a frog and bring it in your house? Mm -hmm. Put it in the bathtub, or right. did you have a dog? Did it ever poop in the house? Did you ever light up bottle rockets? Remember that kid Larry that farted in fifth grade, and everybody still talks about it to this day. Like that's what I thought the podcast would be, right? But it's evolved. Like it just like people just want to get very philosophical. Yeah, they want to have this kind of conversation. Sure, and I think that's what makes podcasts so cool. It's dynamite, man. It is cool, and yeah. I don't know why. Like I'll have people that are strangers on the podcast. Yeah, and then it's like we become friends instantly, and people get vulnerable. And it's so great because the world needs it. It does, man. We need these talks. Absolutely. People feel isolated. They, they do. Feel- you know what? And it's funny because uh, I get a lot of feedback from people and they're like, man, like just to hear somebody go deep for a second in a day of my life that is never deep. It's in a cubicle, eight, nine hours a day, yeah. slagging away, just doing my thing. But it takes me to a different place for that moment in time. We need it. Yeah. Like, I really do think there's universal. I had a guy on my podcast that was awesome who traumatic uh, brain injury. Mm-hmm. And he forgot his whole, he had legit, um, what's the word? Amnesia. Right. Like he, and to this day, he doesn't remember stuff. He really? doesn't remember his childhood. 
But he talked about – he was fascinating because he goes, I've discovered that there's just certain rules mm-hmm. that just work. Right. You have to love each other. So yeah. you know, and I'm like, whoa, this guy's deep. And I think we – somehow the pace of life has gotten people to forget this. Sure. We need to connect. We need to have these deep talks. Mm-hmm. We need each other. Right. Like I think like when we were thousands of years ago behind campfires, that's what this was. Right. And it served a purpose. Sure. And, you know, I think the coolest thing is when Twitter came out, everybody was tweeting puns and becoming famous and making little short jokes in 140 characters. Everybody said that was the future of comedy. Right. But then what happened? Right behind that was this podcast movement where comedians aren't even being funny. Right. They're just being real. Yeah. I think that's so much of the attraction to your show, uh, to WTF with Marin. You really get to... You know, and and there's some. I think there's some guests out there that that can become very guarded, and they're waiting for the answers, and they're waiting yeah. to you know. But you get these really raw moments of magic happen where people become very vulnerable, and they. I've had guests before where I've like I always had this kind of uh, agreement and say, hey, listen, uh, if there's anything that you ever say or that you divulge on the podcast yeah, that you want to share, it. yeah, and and I've to I think to date I've only had one person, a guest from Los Angeles, yeah, tell me that yeah, do the same thing, yeah, and it's. It's very, it's such a magical place. And I don't think people really understand that until you're in that moment with that person and you say to yourself, like, we went a lot deeper than I thought we would ever go. Right. Yeah. It's dynamite, man. Uh, the art of storytelling. I want to hit, hit on this before. Uh, you seem to have mastered that art. You once <laughs> talked about how hard it was trying to tell a story when you only have five minutes on stage. You said there were nights where it just didn't connect. It didn't work. Yeah. It's a bad feeling when you know that your bit is 10 minutes long and three uh-huh. minutes into it, the audience doesn't care. At all. And you've got seven minutes of just eating it, yep. but you put in the work and you learn the stories. Yeah, you learn it. And then also, it, the truth of the matter is you start to learn where the fire exits are. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like You start mapping out the room. Like tonight, I almost told a story about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer I really wanted to tell. And the drunk lady said something at the right time. Something about the minutes of the year. Yeah, and I was like, oh, she just needs attention. And it broke my heart. And then, But I was like, it ruined this. And I went, you know what? I'm taking the exit. I'm not going to. But as a younger comic, I'd be like, I have to tell my Rudolph story. No, no, you don't. Right. And it could be a 20 minute story, but you can give him a three. You could bring up the topic and make it more of a jokey joke thing. Right. And hit two funny punchlines. Absolutely. But I think when stories work best. Right. When it's in those little. When it's detail. When you're connected. And I remember this was the Sam Kinison quote. And I'll paraphrase it. But there's this really cool coffee table book on comedians mm-hmm. where this photographer took pictures of comics. Right. I forget the name of it. I have a copy at my house. I'll, t- I'll send you the name. Mm-hmm. But there's little interviews in there too. And I remember – because I'm just a huge Kinison fan. And he talked about like when you're connected to an audience, mm-hmm. just a face you can make. Right. Will bury the room. Right. And I've noticed that once you're on that story train and they're really into it. Yeah. Body language. Right. Aligns. Not waiting yeah. for them to take the thought from your brain and it hits their brain. Right. They go, boom. Then you say it. Then they laugh as the reward of knowing what you were going to say. Right. It's awesome. That's amazing, man. So it's the opposite. You know, people are like, see, you thought I was going to say this and I got a laugh because it was unexpected. Right. True. Totally works. Yeah. But the best laugh is when you tell them exactly what they expect. <laughs> it's brilliant, man. You, uh, 
you know, you've spoken a lot. It's funny you mentioned uh, Sam uh, Sam Kennison. You spoke a lot about uh, some of your early earlier idols in comedy. Uh, like I said, Kaufman, Murphy, Pryor, yeah, Dangerfield, man. Oh, I loved him. Dangerfield was just. I remember going yeah, to Dangerfield's right. in Vegas when I was a kid oh, with my dad, and <gasps> and he took me there. And how old I, were you saw Rodney live? Oh God, I was probably. 13, <gasps> I think. The best age. And like, that's it... when I was, like, chunk from Goonies. <laughs> I would bring fake puke in the school. I'd wear a Hawaiian shirt. I was just like, I don't know how to talk to girls. And I remember Andrew Dice Clay was opening up for him at that time. And this was back when he was pulling the cigarettes and doing the whole, oh, that you know, Mother Goose rhymes and stuff like that. But he had a club in Vegas called Dangerfields. Which is now the Laugh Factory. Exactly. And, uh, but... I loved Rodney so much. It's oh man, his and, and he did clean a lot of clean comedy. Clean one liners. Let me tell you something. They say comedy's timing. Yeah, and I believe that to be true. Right. There will never be a generation like those guys that grew up. Yeah. In that era, just right. the last, the let like those Youngman one liner, like surgeons. Right. The timing on their set, like I was a fan of Rodney from. The time I knew he, I remember the old Miller Lite commercials. Right here Where comes Rodney. Oh, I must be in the front row. <laughs> That's a good impression. Man. The greatest. <laughs> and I remember because I knew as a kid I did not want to grow up. Right. I thought that kids that wanted to grow up were suckers. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Caddyshack. Right. And I went, well, if I could grow up and be Rodney Dangerfield, I can't wait to grow up. <laughs> Park my car, take my bags, and put on some weight. Okay. <laughs> And then one of the highlights of my life, because lifelong fan, mm-hmm. when I was like 22 years old, I got to see Rodney live, sold out 3,000 seats, theater in the round, the stage moved. He did an hour wow. of one-liners and destroyed. No way. Just set up punch, set up punch, set up. It's brilliant. Do you have work, a favorite one-liner? Do you have a favorite Rodney joke? Oh, man. I think it had to do with, uh, I think there was one. Well, I used to love his wife, Material, or you know, when he was a kid, he used to get you know the doctor would slap him around and you know, all the type, all that type of stuff. You know, my doctor, Doctor Vinnie Boombots. <laughs> doctor Vinnie Boombots, and my dad used to tell me that when I was a kid. Doctor Vinnie Boombots. So comedy was something you shared with your. Dad. Oh man, and it's so funny because I relate so much to you in that sense of that Friday nights, man. I was like Bud Friedman was night at the Improv. Night at the and, Improv. It yeah. made. Like, it made. It, I remember I spent a lot of Friday nights alone. Mm-hmm. Watching comedy, and I remember my first time on the stage at the Improv. I almost broke down. I was gonna say, man, that, what, what was that like? Um, it was a mo- I was like, how could how did this happen? Right. Like I saved up my own money to buy a TV, put it in my room, because my parents forgot they told me yes. Right. Because I waited a year until I had the cash. Wow. I was like, let's rock. <laughs> I'm gonna watch the Tonight Show. That's how much I loved comedy. I loved Johnny Carson. Yeah. And I loved when he would have comedians. Oh, yeah. That was special. That was, And we have comic uh, Jerry Seinfeld. I'd be like, and my little brother would be like, I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> Seriously, you're never going to grow. <laughs> and he was right. This true story. My younger brother was way ahead of the curve in terms of affirmations. Right. He would stretch himself out and go, I'm going to be tall. I'm going to be tall. My younger brother's like six foot two. Get out of town. True. No way. All true. And then he (laughs) would make me put an earpiece in my TV, and I'd have to throw the blanket over the TV and sit on the edge of my bed to watch The Tonight Show. (laughs) That is great, man. That is brilliant. Who are some of your heroes now in comedy? Do you have heroes now? Oh, yeah. I just saw Gabriel Iglesias kill it. He's amazing, man. 
I go, I love that man, guy. like I can't believe he's my friend because he. I always learn from watching him. Yeah. And I learn how he treats his fans. Right. And I mean, he makes it. He makes everybody feel special because to him they are special. Right. He gets it. Yeah. I've never met anybody that successful. Right. That kind. Yeah. I mean, he's a special person. I love him. Um, I love Sebastian. Right. Do you know? So, because they're both completely clean comics. Right. And I mean, Sebastian really, in my opinion, has taken the best of Jerry Seinfeld right. and the best of Andrew Dice Clay and, and brought them it. together. Yeah. It's like angry Seinfeld. It's, I mean, there's a reason why the guys, the guys sell out theaters. Yeah. On word of mouth. That's crazy, man. Theaters. That's crazy. Like, and dude, Bill Burr right now. Wow. Like I get excited when I get to see Bill Burr. Yeah. And I've been a fan of those three guys for a long time. Yeah. Like I remember the first time I got to follow Bill Burr and I was just so excited. That, like I was like, I feel like I'm on the 27 Yankees. <laughs> like to be <laughs> to be a part of the comedy store. And now, dude, Joey Diaz, take all those three comics I just named. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, Brilliant. Man. Yeah. But in terms of naturally funny in the moment. I've seen Joey Diaz do things on stage that nobody in the history of comedy could find. Really? Not even himself. There wow. are times where, like, there's a different kind of laugh sometimes, man, and it's magic, and it happens in the moment. And the wall, like, I thought the ceiling would cave in in the original room at the comedy store. Damn, that is crazy, man. It's the greatest. And to be influenced by all those guys. I like to, to be able to see those guys work up close and personal. Right. I mean, what, as a comedy nerd, yeah. I remember the last time I had like a good bout of depression was when my younger brother, my younger brother moved to LA right. after I'd been there and we shared an apartment together right. and it was really, it was childhood 2.0 <laughs> and it was the happiest I've been as an adult, but we were adults and he was moving home mm -hmm. so he could get married and engaged and start his business and start his own family. Right. But now for the first time ever, I was like really alone. Like, I was alone. I was really depressed when I first moved to L.A. because I right. didn't know anybody. And now was the first time I lived by myself without roommates or anything. Yeah. And I remember I lived close to the Laugh Factory. And I was just like, well, I'll stop in there on my way to the comedy store. And I didn't have a show that night. Right. I was just, as David Tell would say, I had a little bit of a lonely break. <laughs> Dude, David Tell Skanks for the Memories might be the best CD ever. Brilliant. Shoot, brilliant, right? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. David Tell, man. That, oh, yeah. I saw him live once, and it, like back in the 90s, and I was such a fan, it weirded him out. He was like, take it easy. <laughs> take it easy. Oh, the best. Oh, my so, God. So, anyway, I was feeling a little lonely, and I didn't have a show, and it's like, what are you going to do when you don't have a show? I was like, I'll just hang out and see my pals. But I'm not really a, a Laugh Factory guy. Right. I knew it. I had gotten enough spots there where the door guy knew me. Right. So I was just like, I'll go in and watch for a little. And I got to see some of my friends perform. And it dawned on me. I'm like, wait, that guy is so funny. Yeah. And he's my friend. Right. And I think I spoke with, like, I think it was that night I spoke with Chris D'Elia. And I'm like, this is like one of the funniest guys in the world. Yeah. And he's hanging out with me. <laughs> and then later that night, I'm down at the comedy store and I run into Moshe Kasher. Wow. And you couldn't have people that approach comedy from a different point of view. Right. But now I'm hanging out with Moshe. And I go, wait, two of the funniest guys in the world know my name. What? <laughs> and I had a similar experience once after coming back and 
bombing the best man's speech at my younger brother's wedding. <laughs> Bombed. <laughs> ate it. It was horrific on so many levels. It's a pain I'm going to carry with me to my <laughs> But that night, I was hanging out at the improv, and I ran into Jim Norton, who was in town doing something oh, for Jesus, the Tonight Show. Wow. And he was like, how's it going? And I'm like, what the fudge? I'm like, yeah, that's my friend. And then that night, just like three, four years ago, and then Bill Burr, hey, how are you? And I'm like, he might not know my name, but he knows my face. <laughs> and I'm like, I jumped into my dream somewhere along the way. Somewhere along the way of starving and not having a car and walking to work and getting booed off stage and not having money to go home for the holidays and not having enough money for a girlfriend. And I became friends with the funniest people in the world. And I went, that's worth more than any anything. That's the fortune right there. That's yeah. the fortune. Like even in a... Ozzy Osbourne's book, he tells a great story about when his wife had cancer and how he felt powerless. Right. And he was like, I had all the money in the world, but I couldn't cure her. And he was like, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. He was like, so I called in a favor. I called Robin Williams to come down and cheer her up. Wow. And he was, and Robin, she, Sharon hadn't laughed in months. Mm -hmm. And Robin had her laughing, so her tears were in her eyes. He goes, and that's when I realized what a gift comedians are. And I'm like, here's the godfather of rock and roll. Wow, man. Talk about how cool comedians are. Because I'm going to be honest with you, dude. I didn't think being a comedian was cool or a talent. I always loved it. Because yeah. I grew up in a family that was our language. Right. We grew up in the laughter. That was how we communicated. We broke each other's balls. We made each other laugh. Sure. But I never thought like being a comedian was as cool as like being a Navy SEAL. Right. Or being a pro football player. I'm like. Yeah. And then I went to go entertain the troops. And I remember the first time I was in Afghanistan, there was a group of guys that looked like the Sons of Anarchy that want to hang out. And they're like, don't you know who we are? I'm like, no, this is my first tour. They're like, we're special operations. We get to do what you want, a beer? I'm like, you can't have beer in Afghanistan. They're like, all right, we'll have whiskey then. I'm like, what? was the coolest thing ever. I'm like, the toughest guys in the world want to be my friends. That's amazing, man. Amazing. And I realized what a great life. Like, I don't care if I ever have money or fame. I have these moments. Yeah. I have these memories. And that's really what it is, right? You, you did comedy on a beach, right? One time? Oh, uh, yeah. And there was like no lights, no power, no, nothing. no microphone, nothing. But yeah, you nothing. entertained some Pulled soldiers out. and some kids. Yeah. What's the podcast that I tell that story on? How did you hear that? Oh, I don't even remember, man. I'm just like, I'm a dude, fan. Dude, it's true. I'm a fan. I, uh, it was Haiti right after the earthquake. That's what it was. Right, right. And the U.S. military had to meet these poor guys, man. They had been deployed for God knows how long. They come home for Christmas after being at war. Right. And now they have to get sent right back out. Some of those guys were home for just a week. Mm -hmm. They have to go back to Haiti. So all the ships are located off the mainland. And I talked to that. It was horrific, the stuff they saw. Right. And it, just to be able to try to put those guys in a better mood mm -hmm. was beyond humbling. And then we found out where this guy, he looked like he came out of a comic book. The dude had a flat top with like a gray streak in it. He had a giant mustache. G.I. Joe type of... Dude, he had a cigar that wasn't lit. No. You guys are some funny sons of bitches. I know some guys that could use some laughs. You want to come with me? He's got two pistols. Here, hold this. I'm like, what? Jesus, don't hold that. That's a live weapon. I got one chambered. You're going to kill somebody. Jesus, Simone, you crazy son of a bitch. So then we take this thing called a Hellcat. And he goes, you want to drive it? I bet you do. You can. It's like a hovercraft. Boom. 
He's like, we're getting attacked. Grab the pistols. And I'm like, what? The guy was straight out of a comic book. Wow. Like, there man. are people that are legitimately so cool that whenever you hang out with them, you feel like you're a kid and you're hanging out with Absolutely. Captain America. <laughs> and we pull up on this beach. Boom. And there's about 15, 20 Marines that are guarding food. So there's no riots. And these poor bastards have been sleeping on that beach in tents with eating meal, eating their food out of cans. Right. Nothing. Right. And the guy comes out with his pistols and a cigar. He goes, smoke them if you got them. He lights a cigar and he's like, we're going to put on a show for you. Sorry, sons of bitches. All right, you. What do they go? You devil dogs? Because they're all Marines. Pull up a chair and the guys are like, what? And then I was with this great comic, this guy, Tom Foss. Who's the only comedian I've never seen bomb? Right, and he was like, "We're gonna do a show, hoo hoo!" And they're like, "What?" And I remember, no mic, nothing, and the guys—they're not necessarily laughing, or we're not killing, but they appreciate it. You sure. see it, and they're laughing a little bit. And I do remember when I was finished, I just hear "Yay!" and I look over, and there was like three, four, five little Haitian kids that don't wow, even speak man. English. Holy but shit. they knew it was a show, and they knew I was funny because they like the way they making faces and laughing and no way. imitating my body language. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna shit. There was there's a picture I have with a little kid because I was wearing a comedy store shirt and I gave him my shirt. No way. Yeah. Did that mean as much to you as it did being able to hang out with some of your heroes and and have more. them know your name? More. Yeah. Way more. That's crazy, man. Well, that's that's the only reason to do it. And like now. The best thing I've gotten to do is I've gotten involved with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Right. And um, to make a kid that's sick laugh is something that um, I'll never – like it's the greatest – because not only is it wonderful to interact with that child, mm-hmm. but I remember what got me hooked was when I saw this kid's parents make eye contact and they started to smile and like start to tear up when they saw their kid happy. Right. And it's like the kids give you that instant reward because mm-hmm. they're they don't know they're awesome. Sure, but knowing you're putting the parents at ease, right? It's the greatest. And it, it, it's my Christmas miracle. So uh, I mentioned something about one of the little guys I go visit wanting an Xbox. So I just tweet somebody that listens to my podcast gave me money before I even thought of this. Just a fan, this lady Gretchen was like, I know you visit kids at the hospital. Me and my sons want to do something nice. We want to send you money so you can buy them toys. I'm like, please, it's not necessary. Right. She was like, you you're, do the podcast for free every week. Just It's not a lot of money. Yeah. Just take it and buy your friend a toy. I'm like, great. Check my PayPal account. She put $250 in there. Oh, man. So now I call this kid's mom, and I'm like, it's going to be a great Christmas. What does he want? He wants an Xbox. So I sat on it, and I was like, you know what? I bet somebody I know – on social media, either works for Microsoft or works at a toy shop or sure. won one in a raffle that doesn't want to, I'm going to be able to get a good deal on an Xbox. Right. Well, then what happened was amazing because people are like, here's 20 bucks, here's 50 bucks, buy me the Xbox. I didn't expect that. Right. I didn't even give any PayPal information. They just knew it. Right. From things in the past. Sure. So then it gets better. There's a deli I go to all the time. Right. My buddy Carlo from the deli was like, Stevie. Coming Monday, we're going to have an Xbox for you. I go, what? You don't need to do that. No, you're a great customer. You're a better guy. You inspire people. So I go in and there's a free Xbox. Okay. It gets better. There's another kid I know who's – he has cancer. His mom has cancer. Four years ago, their house burned down. They're in danger of losing the place they're staying at now. They're getting kicked out. There's no money. 
I had promised the kid that I was going to make sure that they had enough money for rent. Right. I didn't know how I was going to do it, so I reached out to Brett Ernst, who's a great comic. I reached out to this kitty, Vinny and Johnny, and these people I did a blood drive with. They're like, we'll make sure, yes, we'll get the money together. Right. Okay, this is the Christmas miracle. I mentioned Bill Burr being my favorite comic, you know? Because he is. I have so much respect for that guy that I don't bother him. Right. I see him at the comedy store. I shake his hand. How are you, sir? I move on. And we have a lot of mutual friends. Right. But I just don't want to ruin, like, if he wants to talk to me, he'll talk to me. Right. Um, I get a phone call on Sunday, like two hours after I posted about the Xbox, and I'm calling this kid's mom. I'm like, I'm going to be able to give you money. Somebody's buying the Xbox. Um, the guy that produces Bill's podcast is like, hey, Bill doesn't have a charity for Christmas. He wants to do something. I want to pitch him the kids at the children's hospital. Wow. He goes, because the thing that sucks about charities are you donate a thousand bucks and 900 goes to administrative costs. Sure. And I go, he goes, why don't we let Bill buy the Xbox? I go, well, the Xbox is bought. There's this other kid who's sick. And he goes, Jesus. I go, he's got cancer. His mom's got cancer. His dad's on disability. Right. He's got a little brother. There's no money for Christmas presents. They're going to get kicked out of the house. He goes, I'm calling Bill right now. So then right before I came to Canada, I get a phone call from the producer of Bill's podcast. He goes, Bill's in. What do you need? I go, like, well, $2,000. Well, Bill's going to share it on his podcast, tell all of his listeners to donate. He'll match the first 1000 Now, this is what he wants you to do. Start your own GoFundMe. Right. Call it like Steve Santa Fund. Sure. He goes, because if we give it to this kid's GoFundMe and there's $20,000 in there, we want the money to go to all the kids. Right. I was like, oh, my gosh. So now after this podcast, I go back to my hotel. I go finish the GoFundMe thing. My manager's like, we should really look into you starting your charity now. Right. And it could just – because there's always somebody I know that needs help. Absolutely. Whether it's a kid in the hospital, whether it's a comic in a wheelchair, there's always somebody that could use it. And I'm like, wait, maybe I'm – maybe this is it. Maybe this is really my calling. Yeah. Maybe comedy's just part of it. Wow, man. How cool is that? That's amazing. The best comedian like in the world. That is jaw dropping, man. That is crazy. It's a miracle because like the Xbox came in from the deli. I have an agent that wants to buy another Xbox. I'm like, I'll give it to the other kid. This fat, this is without even sharing it on my podcast or on your podcast or with the GoFund. This is just miracle. Yeah, man. Like it makes me believe in Santa. That's amazing. All these people want to get involved. That's you know, it's such crazy, a blessing, right? dude, and it's and it's such a. Uh, I think what you put out is what you get back, and clearly, yeah. what you put out on stage—you know—the way that your your spirit, your attitude, and everything obviously is coming back to you, man. So, congratulations on nice, that success, man. man. That's amazing, and that and cool. changing cool? some lives, man. That's that's truly it's, remarkable. Uh, I don't know what's next, but I'm really I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man. You can find Steve at Twitter at Steve Simo. Yeah, S I M E O N E. And uh, your website, awesomesteve.com. Yeah. It's a great, great website, man. Oh, it's that, dynamite, yeah, my, dude. A fan of mine designed that. No way. My it's got the Bryce. Simpsons intro and the, yeah, man, the kids, uh, it's, it's a dynamite yeah, looking just the site, guy man. Listens, he was like, can I, but, and I'm like, this is what you should be doing. I dude. love that. <laughs> I love when people like got gifts that just reach out and be like, let me help you That's make this better. That's the coolest thing about this whole podcast thing. It goes around the world. People, graphic designers, or people, just everybody's got something they can do. He's willing to step up, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing this, Steve. Dude, thank you for asking. And we'll do good times this weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Dude, that'll be be awesome. I'd be honored. All right, folks.
folks, there you have it, the Steve Simone interview. What an amazing guy. What did I tell you, right? Awesome, awesome dude. Go check out his GoFundMe page. The cool thing also, guys, is that he actually invited me down to the comedy store to do a live podcast. How cool is that? We're going to take him up on that. Hey, on behalf of the Yuck Yucks crew, your host, Jay Kirsch, Mr. Mark Breslin, executive producer, Kira Williams, and of course, our webmaster, Camille Sarovi. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Also, have a very Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Love you long time.